Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, Pulitzer Prize-winning author Gilbert King discusses the infamous Groveland case. By the morning, uh, Norma Paget had made these accusations that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans in Lake County. We'll discuss the new virtual exhibit, Bending Toward Justice, a multi-level digital exhibit space. If you want to think of it as a digital museum, that's appropriate. And we'll talk about Florida food journalist Jane Nickerson. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. As Pulitzer Prize-winning author of the books Devil in the Grove, Thurgood Marshall, The Groveland Boys, and The Dawn of a New America, and Beneath a Ruthless Sun, a true story of violence, race, and justice lost and found, Gilbert King chronicles a difficult period of Florida history. Much of his research focuses on the infamous Groveland story, which begins in Lake County. Back in 1949, a young woman by the name of Norma Paget and her husband, Willie Paget. Um, she was 17. He was a little bit older than her at the time. Rumors were going around town that Willie had gotten physical with his wife and there was a separation. Uh, and so even though Norma Paget was married at the age of 17, uh, she was quickly separated um, and the family sort of got involved because they didn't think this was turning out to be a very mature match. Um, but by the summer of 1949, uh, Willie Paget sort of wanted to get things going again with his wife, a second chance, I guess you could say. And so he asked her out on a date um, and picked up some whiskey and they went out dancing in Lake County. And on their way home from uh, this, I think it was American Legion Lodge in Claremont, uh, they were driving down a road heading towards to get a late night um, snack or something. And apparently they had some car problems. Something happened on the side of the road. We're not really quite sure exactly what, but one thing we do know is that by the morning, uh, Norma Paget had made these accusations that she had been abducted and sexually assaulted by four African-Americans in Lake County. Sheriff Willis McCall decided who was guilty of the alleged crimes before any evidence was gathered. He personally directed Ku Klux Klansmen to burn down African-American homes in the Lake County community of Stuckey Still in retaliation for the alleged attack on Norma Paget. The morning after the burnings, McCall toured the destruction with a photographer from Life magazine, Gilbert King. What he doesn't tell him is that the night before, Willis McCall was actually at the scene and basically field directing the Klan as to which houses to burn down. Um, so that we learned later through the records. But as far as this photographer knew, he was just showing up with law enforcement 
to look at the damage of the clan. And this sort of speaks to the, the blurring of the lines and, and the mixing uh, between the Ku Klux Klan and law enforcement. And this is something that Stetson Kennedy had been writing about for a very long time, which is a really interesting way to look at what was happening in the South a lot of times. Uh, in fact, Stetson Kennedy said something to me which uh, really resonated when I met him, boy, maybe 15 years ago. Uh, he said, you know, it, when you look at white supremacy in the South, it's just a changing of the uniforms. It started out with the, you know, Confederate uniform. Um, then it switches over to the hood and the robe of the Klan. And then when that is becoming unacceptable, there's a new uniform that comes into place and that's the uniform of law enforcement. And that's what you really see when you look at the 40s and 50s especially, um, is this mixing between law enforcement and the Klan. Um, and and I, I've talked to some deputies in Lake County who are alive, you know, on McCall's force. And, and they told me, you know, what they could not accomplish through the law, they would just accomplish later on through the Klan. Uh, and so that mixing really plays a really important role in this story and many stories in the Jim Crow South. Very quickly, three of the so-called Groveland Four were arrested by Willis McCall and his deputies, and evidence that was later proven to be manufactured was created to establish a case against them. Suspect Ernest Thomas was shot and killed. Walter Irvin, Charles Greenlee, and Samuel Shepard were taken into custody. These defendants were arrested, taken into the basement of the Lake County Courthouse, and beaten so severely they had welts all over their body, um, bruises, teeth were knocked out to get what Willis McCall called the confessions. Um, and later on, he stood on the courthouse steps and held up some blank pieces of paper that said, I'm holding in my hand uh, the confessions from three of the suspects, which you know was not true. It was really, I think, designed to just sort of placate um, the crowd because um, they had shown up at the jail. They were expecting a lynching. They thought, they believed that the Groveland defendants were in the jail. And by the hundreds, they showed up outside the jail and they demanded to get the defendants brought down, which you know, could have easily resulted in a lynching. Uh, Sheriff Willis McCall, smartly enough, was hailed as a hero, really pre preventing a lynching. Uh, and the New York Times ran a big story, fast-talking sheriff prevents lynching in Lake County, Florida. Um, so he really does kind of start off as a hero in this story, although we all, all obviously know there's something else going on behind the scenes. Within 48 hours of the defendant's false arrest, the Orlando Morning Sentinel poisoned the jury pool by running an editorial cartoon on the front page showing four electric chairs. The outcome of the trial was a foregone conclusion with each defendant receiving a guilty verdict. NAACP lawyer Thurgood Marshall joined the defense team for the appeal. Thurgood Marshall and his lawyers were told that there was no possible way that you could send an African-American lawyer into the courtroom and have him actually question the word of a white woman. They said that would be the quickest way to inflame the 12 white male jurors and to send their clients to the electric chair. And so Marshall and his lawyers knew that that was actually an accurate assessment of what was really acceptable in the day in Lake County at the time. And so they hired um, a white lawyer by the name of Alex Ackerman. Um, no white lawyers wanted this case at all. It was a career ender, but Ackerman's um, father had been on some pretty interesting cases himself. And Ackerman 
himself had represented Virgil Hawkins and four other African-Americans to integrate the University of Florida. So his career was already ruined um, basically in, in central Florida. So he was willing to take this case. You know, he was an interesting person who was willing to look at these cases when at the time there were not a lot uh, of white lawyers who would have taken a case like this to defend African-Americans in such an explosive themed case. With falsified evidence and perjured witness testimony, guilty verdicts were inevitable in the Groveland rape trials. Thurgood Marshall took the case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where the justices overturned the verdicts and ordered a new trial. An unhappy Willis McCall took matters into his own hands. While personally transporting two of the defendants, McCall claimed he had car trouble and the two prisoners tried to escape. McCall shot and killed Sam Shepard, Walter Irvin pretended to be dead, but was still alive. Gilbert King. As Walter Irvin arrives at the hospital, he begins to get, uh, the word begins to be spreading around uh, the community that he is um, telling a very different story than the one that Willis McCall tells. The doctors are saying that he's talking about the evening, he remembers, he has great clarity. And so the following morning, Thurgood Marshall, his lawyers all show up at the hospital in Lake County and here's a photograph that was taken. You can see Walter Irvin laying there in bed. There's uh, reporters, the stenographer, there's members of the FBI are there. Uh, Marshall and his lawyers are there and they're questioning Walter Irvin about the night before. And Irvin saying there was no flat tire. He just got around, opened the door and just opened fire. It was just cold-blooded murder. He shot Sam Shepard three times. The last shot went right between his eyes, killing him instantly. Irvin says, I'm handcuffed to him. There's nothing I can do. McCall reaches in and drags Sam Shepard out of the car. And Irvin says, I just fell out too. He said, uh, the sheriff then shot him twice, once in the chest and once in the side. And then the story gets truly horrifying. He says, he's laying there. He's not dead yet. He's pretending to be dead. He hears Willis McCall get on the radio and call back his deputy, James Yates, to the scene. Then he hears Yates's car, hears the footsteps. And the next thing he knows, he's feeling a flashlight shining over his face and he opens his eyes and he hears the deputy say, this one ain't dead yet. And he sees the deputy point a gun straight down and a flash from the gun. That last bullet went straight through Walter Irvin's neck, still did not kill him. Um, so he's pretending to be dead. He's laying there, still conscious. He says, he hears them say, we got to make it look like an escape and they start tearing at his clothes. They pull some of McCall's hair out of his head, put it in the body of Sam Shepard in his hand. Uh, they rip the clothes. And, and so they're, they're making this look like an escape attempt. And, and Irvin's saying, why would I escape? I, I just was victorious in the Supreme Court. Thurgood Marshall's my lawyer. I'm not making a run for it while I'm handcuffed. Doesn't make any sense. Federal investigators proved that Walter Irvin's terrifying story was true and that Sheriff Willis McCall was lying about the shooting. FBI is listening to this and they're thinking, well, we've recovered five of the bullets from the bodies of Sam Shepard and Walter Irvin. The sixth bullet that went straight through Irvin's neck, we're never going to find that because it was not lodged in his body. But they're thinking, according to, to Sheriff Willis McCall's version, they're never going to find that bullet. He said they were charging at the time. But they say, if Walter Irvin's telling the truth, we have an idea where that sixth bullet might be. 
And so the FBI rushes back to the crime scene from the night before, and they find the blood spots about 10 inches wide. And that's where Walter Irvin was laying the night before. And they start digging down with a little shovel beneath that blood spot. And 10 inches below the surface of that soil, they find a 38 caliber bullet directly below the blood spot. And right away, the FBI knows that Willis McCall is lying, that this is cold-blooded murder. Now they have forensic evidence to back up Walter Irvin's version of the story. And they write a report that's absolutely damning. It's encouraging prosecution of McCall and his deputy for murder and attempted murder. Remarkably, the story goes nowhere. The case goes nowhere. Uh, the U.S. attorney in Tampa, Herbert Phillips, a known segregationist himself, um, declines to go forward with this case against the sheriff and the deputy. And the judge, Truman Futch, in Lake County, says because the coroner's jury was so efficient and so thorough in their investigation, and because they found that Sheriff Willis McCall was defending himself that evening, there's no need to impanel a grand jury with any of this evidence because the coroner's jury did such a thorough job. Tragically, it was Sheriff Willis McCall who picked his own coroner's jury. Um, he picked friends and associates, and naturally they did what was expected of them. Not only was Willis McCall never charged with murder, he served as sheriff in Lake County for another two decades until 1972. Gilbert King is author of the books Devil in the Grove and Beneath a Ruthless Sun. His keynote presentation for the Florida Historical Society Virtual Public History Forum can be seen online at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, watch our public television series, Florida Frontiers, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gonna come oh yes it will Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, there's a lot of discussion today about how historians view history through the lens of social justice and you're involved in an exciting online exhibit dealing with justice issues. Yes, for some time, historians have recognized the reality of the saying that local is global. What happens in small places is influenced by larger events and in turn influences national and international transformations. The Election Day massacre at Ocoee in November 1920 is one such example. 
The racism that drove the murder of an undetermined number of black men, women, and children, the destruction of homes, churches, and meeting places in the black community, and the loss of productive property that promised the ability to pass on generational wealth should be understood as both personal tragedy for members of the community and a case study of the violence that permeated life in the Jim Crow South. Presenting Okoe in its local and national contexts allows us to understand the massacre not as a unique moment of violence in the distant past, but representative of the struggle for American promise, a struggle in which Okoe was one example that stretched from Wilmington in 1898 to Tulsa in 1921 to Rosewood in 1923. In mid-June, the first of a three-phase exhibit on voting rights and voter suppression opened in a new digital exhibit space called Bending Toward Justice. Bending Toward Justice is a multi-level digital exhibit space. If you want to think of it as a digital museum, that's appropriate. It builds on community and academic partnerships established through the Regional Initiative for Collecting History, Experiences, and Stories, the Riches Digital Archiving Project. The exhibits use donations of documents, maps, photographs, oral histories, podcasts, documentary films, and secondary sources to explore the history of black communities in Florida and engage the public and scholars in dialogues on race in Florida and the nation. Connie, tell me about the title of this exhibit space, Bending Toward Justice. The use of the phrase bending toward justice has a long history in American life, beginning with the abolitionist movement. In 1853, abolitionist minister Theodore Parker proclaimed, The arc of history is long, but it bends toward justice. Martin Luther King Jr. changed the quote slightly when a century later he wrote, The arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. In both renditions, it is a complex concept that both acknowledges injustice and infuses hope. Framing the history as an arc rather than a straight line also recognizes the snail's pace of real transformation and the unlikeliness of finding a single solution to issues of injustice. Choosing Bending Toward Justice as the working title of this multi-year digital project and adding Documenting the Struggle for Political, Economic, and Social Equality define the parameters in important ways. One, the project recognizes an arc that begins with slavery and continues into the present and acknowledges the moments that bent the arc toward justice. Number two, justice is the most difficult word of the title. Dialogues on the concept of justice and what defines it for succeeding generations will be embedded in the material presented in the exhibits. And three, incorporating the struggle for political, social, educational, and economic goals suggests that the struggle itself is one that cannot be limited to the achievement of a single objective. That full equality incorporates all aspects of individual and community life. Well, Connie, you've broken down this exhibit into several sections, right? Yes, we did. It's quite large. Um, The voting rights and voter suppression exhibit will roll out in three parts. Part one 
documents the Okoe massacre as individual tragedy and a case study. The violence at Okoe on November 2nd and 3rd, 1920, was not coincidental. The rise of the Ku Klux Klan in 1915 and its embrace by middle-class men, women, and children sanctioned racism. The entry of the United States in World War I reinvigorated nationalism and patriotism and vilified the other, a situation that did not end on November 11, 1918, but merely shifted focus to new and old targets. Blacks who served in the military and who expected thereby to demonstrate their citizenship were particular targets for abuse in post-war America. The pandemic of 1918 and 1919 killed 650,000 Americans out of a population of 106 million, with blacks statistically more likely to die. The summer of 1919, labeled by James Weldon Johnson as the Red Summer, witnessed race riots across the nation in Chicago, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Elaine, Arkansas, among other cities. 1920 was both an election year and a census year. The NAACP urged black fraternal organizations to conduct voter registration campaigns, to pay their poll taxes, and vote. Census data would inform the reapportionment of the House of Representatives. If, as expected, registered voters were denied the ballot, the NAACP could call upon the House Apportionment Committee to invoke Section 2 of the 14th Amendment that permitted the reduction of the representation of any state that denied the vote to legal voters. The election was complicated by the enfranchisement of women through the ratification of the 19th Amendment in late August 1920, some two months before the presidential election. Black voters expected trouble. They did not expect a massacre. Future exhibits in the Bending Toward Justice exhibit space will include an exhibit on black entrepreneurship, an exhibit on black religion, an exhibit on civil rights, and an exhibit on black education. Important exhibits telling the complete history of Florida. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. It's been a long, a long time coming, but I know change gon' come. Oh, yes it will. This is Florida Frontiers. Food journalist Jane Nickerson rose to prominence at the Lakeland Ledger newspaper. Holly Baker has more. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a tenured professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She's also the author of several books, including Reevaluating Women's Page Journalism in the Post-World War II Era, Celebrating Soft News. She recently talked to me about Jane Nickerson a food journalist who began her career at the New York Times as a food editor from 1942 to 1957, before moving on to the Lakeland Ledger in Lakeland, Florida. Jane Nickerson was a pioneering um, newspaper food writer. Uh, she started in the 1940s at the New York Times, 
She was the first food editor at the New York Times, um, something that she didn't get recognition for for a very long time. And she started um, during World War II. So food news was really news. There was rationing, right? Um, there were uh, giving food advice to home cooks, which are almost always women, on how to both put dinner on the table, but they were also working in numbers that they had never done before, particularly you know middle-class women. So she uh, made the most of one of the only places a journalist could be at that time, which is a, a food editor um, in the women's pages. While with the New York Times, Jane Nickerson also introduced readers to future food celebrities Craig Claiborne and James Beard, both whose work eventually overshadowed hers. In 1957, Jane Nickerson left the New York Times and moved to Lakeland, Florida. And I can't even imagine you know, how different life would have been at that point, too, to write food news in Lakeland when you've been in Manhattan. And so she had two more children for a total of four. Uh, by 1972, she is divorced, taking care of these children, writes a cookbook, known as the Florida Cookbook, and then starts working as um, not just the food editor at the Lakeland Ledger, which was owned by the New York Times at the time, not now. And she wrote for several other New York Times-owned newspapers. So she was the food editor, kind of lots of little regional papers too. Jane Nickerson's Florida Cookbook showcased Florida cuisine with a focus on citrus. Her recipes, especially her mango pie and key lime pie recipes, are still widely shared today. One of my favorite things is her cookbook. It's, it holds up today, and that's you know not true of every cookbook from the 1970s. But my favorite part about it is that it's not just the Florida cookbook by Jane Nickerson, but her name is above the title. It's Jane Nickerson's Florida cookbook. Um, and I just love the ownership of that in the 1970s in particular, when women were just kind of starting to become the kinds of food writers they would get later credit for. Uh, and this, the cookbook is full of stories about Florida history, about the different families in her community in Lakeland, but also in Miami, um, Jacksonville, uh, in the Panhandle. And I think it's really significant what it meant to be a home cook that was recognized for her cookery. I like actually her desserts, the most. So she was very good about key lime pie, lime pie, mango pie. I think she really saw this as a way of showing off what Florida had. This cookbook um, that, again, she put out in 1973 is still in press today, put out by um, the University Press of Florida. So you can still, I've seen it in bookstores in recent years. And so I, I love that what she did was so timeless, that it's not just a historical document, which it is. And, and that part's really neat too but people are still cooking. Her stuff still works. Jane Nickerson's Florida cookbook has been regaining popularity in recent years. Jane Nickerson may not be a household name yet, but she's finally starting to get the recognition she deserves for her work as a pioneering food journalist. Dr. Kimberly Voss. There are so many women, particularly in food, which again, you know, you have to remember in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, was one of the only things that was acceptable to them to write about. And they've been so marginalized. Every time we talk about Craig Claiborne or James Beard, that's one less Jane Nickerson than becomes part of food history, despite the fact that they laid this great foundation. And by the late 70s, when we have no more women's pages, most food editors became men. And so the women um, that did all this work in the, those early years are really marginalized. And I was so happy that recently the New York Times decided to recognize her. But even her obit didn't have Nickerson. They had her married name Steinberg. 
so you know there's a lot of work to be done i guess um it, it's not like we just started talking about women's history right i mean we've been doing this at least since the 70s i think there's just so many more women um that we need to include in that culinary historical record and there's lots of them in florida for florida frontiers i'm holly baker public history coordinator for the florida historical society and archivist at the library of florida history in coco You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.